Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. So somebody once said that traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, whereas tradition is the living faith of the dead. So this morning, I want to actually invite you to participate with me in a wonderful ancient tradition. Many people feel that the sign of the cross is merely superstitious, and it can be, and to some people it is, but history actually shows us that there's this long line of tradition within the early church. Tertullian, uh, uh, Hippol, uh, I keep messing up his name, Hippolytus, there we go, and Cyril of Jerusalem, they all made comments about the importance of uh, reverently making, now get this, reverently making the sign of the cross on their bodies as a testimony of God's hand upon their lives. History, tradition. Early Christians, they marked themselves in, in, in several ways as well, but one of the first ways was this. You would take your three fingers, you take your two ma major fingers and your thumb, can you do this? Work with me. Don't worry, you're not going to hell, all right? So some of you evangelicals, loosen up. Um, so, you know, you got your three fingers here, and they would symbolize the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You got that? And they would put them together, and in prayer, they would touch their forehead, they would touch their mouth, and they would touch their heart. And so, they would ask God to bless their thoughts, bless everything spoken, and bless everything felt. And that is ancient history within the Christian church. And so before I start, I'm wondering if you would join me in a simple tradition, a heartfelt prayer accompanied by, at the end, this simple tradition. Now, if you don't want to, you don't have to, but let's pray. Father God, bless everything thought this morning, bless everything spoken and everything felt in the heart. And may we leave this place knowing that we have heard your voice, and may we be healing agents to those that you have placed in our world. Amen. Now, open your iPhones, iPads, eyelids. For some of you, we'll find ourselves in Matthew chapter 23. And, <clears throat> and again, we pick up the book of the Bible and we're walking through. And when we get to Matthew, the end of Matthew 25, we got something in store for the entire community. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. We got something in store for you. So you're going to have to be walking with us and you're going to need to be present and it's going to be a great time, and we're going to learn. But Matthew 23, and a number of the commentators don't know what to do with this chapter. Theologian Frederick uh, Bruner is a source that I use, and, and it's pretty amazing to read his comments regarding chapter 23. He says, the pitch of Jesus' propheticism in the sermon is so high, and its attack so bitter, that some interpreters have difficulty believing that the historical Jesus ever said much of it. Swiss theologian Lutz said, and he's candid about his feelings when he writes, In the woe speech of chapter 23, I stand as an interpreter next to the text in a state of shock, and I sometimes wish that this chapter did not stand in the Bible. Um, most critical commentaries and studies believe that Matthew's description of Jesus' uh, judgment on the Pharisees here in this chapter is unfair to them. One, another theologian, he wrote, he goes, Jesus doesn't talk this way. This is not the Jesus we know elsewhere. So what is this chapter where Jesus seems to violate his own commandment to love your enemies? How does that affect us? Where does it come from? How do we apply it today? And I wonder, as I was going through this, if a lot of the commentators don't like these words because they are some of the harshest words Jesus ever spoke but they were directed towards the professional religious pretenders. In just one speech, Jesus calls them hypocrites seven times. He calls them fools twice. He calls them blind guys five times. He calls them serpents and broods of vipers once. And so I'm asking myself, why are scholars finding Jesus' words so hard, so offensive, and even repulsive? And then it struck me because they, we, I mean me, come as close to the scribes and Pharisees as anyone can today. The scribes are scholars and teachers. I'm reminded of the severity of uh, James's words that seem appropriate in light of this. When we looked at it in our relational rehab, James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that you'll be judged more strictly. Wow. That's an uncomfortable verse for pastors and teachers. 
Now remember our context. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. He does some temple cleansing, so to speak. He occupies the temple. He does some healing. He does some teaching. During that time, he claims his rightful title as Israel's Messiah. He is the Christ. The religious and the political leaders of Jerusalem, they understood this, and they, uh, they understood and took their best shot at trying to discredit Jesus and undermine his authority, and they fail miserably, both privately and publicly. Every question they posed proved to be a fatal error, and Jesus has the authority, and he puts them in their place, and their final response is that they're in stunned silence. He flips the questions back on them. And in chapter 23, this is exactly what Jesus does. He now turns the table and he begins to attack their leadership and their authority. And Jesus uses the scribes and the Pharisees as examples of what not to do. Last week, we examined Jesus' description of the five characteristics of these false leaders in the first 12 uh, verses. They claimed authority for themselves. They made hypocritical demands of their followers. They were loveless and uncaring. They made pretentious displays of their religiosity. They were proud and arrogant. And Jesus now continues in these warnings about these false spiritual leaders, and he addresses them directly. Eight times he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He gets it all in there. More than any other group, The scribes and the Pharisees were the false teachers of the time. There were some others who were sincere. You have people like Nicodemus that we find in the New Testament. But the majority of these people have traded the truths and the wisdom of God for traditions and the wisdom of men. Now, Jesus repeats this pronouncement upon them. Woe to you. That word woe can be translated cursed be. Cursed be. And it's the exact opposite of what we have read in the Beatitudes. It's the opposite of blessed be. So, you know, we love the Beatitudes because those are really cool. But now Jesus flips it over and does the opposite. So these religious actors were obsessed with the trivial. And Jesus is calling them out. They, uh, They majored on the minors. And Jesus' use of that woe here, that word woe, is of judgment. He's judging them mixed with regret. All right, so he's not just pointing a finger, but there's a mixture of regret there. And he's using it as a declaration of divine judgment, a pronouncement against sinful people who are not going to turn from their ways. That's why we don't like this chapter. Because Jesus is not coming across as all loving and forgiving and wonderful and warm and fuzzy. He's doing a declaration of divine judgment against sinful people who are not going to turn away from their evil ways. He calls them hypocrites. Again, Greek word, actors who use a mask over their face. They play a part. You know, they pretend to be something they're not, specifically somebody better than they really are, actually. And so outwardly appearing to the public to be of a high virtue, but inwardly and in private, proving to be very, very immoral. And so maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, Jerry, the scribes and Pharisees are no longer around. Why should we study this passage of Scripture? Shouldn't we just move on? Well, I'll just say this. There are false spiritual leaders and teachers who exist in our time, and they have these characteristics. And we, as the church, need to be studied and know what we believe. These scriptures actually enable us to recognize and warn us of the religious hypocrites in our time. So today I'll be naming names and calling people out, and maybe you in the congregation might find I'll ask you to stand, but no, I'm not going to do that. We're just going to go and walk through this. So open up your Bible. We're just going to walk through it, and and if you don't have it, uh, download it or watch it on the screen. Here it is. Jesus describes eight more characteristics in chapter 23 here. False spiritual leaders, they have these eight characteristics. Verse 5, uh, uh, verse 13, sorry. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. I love this. But this is where you can, you can hear the angst in Jesus' voice. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. 
So these guys are religious charlatans. They got the game down. The picture described is of these guys standing at the gates of heaven and slamming the gate shut in the face of those who would like to go in. They won't go in themselves, and they do their best to keep other people out. Well, how do they do this? Well, by setting aside the grace of God, by developing a religion of works righteousness, the common idea that, you know, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just good enough, God is going to let us into heaven. That was an amen. I don't know if you heard that, but that was an amen. You know, there are plenty of religious charlatans today. You know, the false religions, the major cults are easy enough to spot because of their emphasis on earning your salvation by what you do. Romans chapter 6 makes it clear that salvation is from sin to righteousness. It's not to escape hell. And this salvation comes only by God's grace and mercy in granting forgiveness to those who place their faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said that those who live for him, uh, which is the result of true salvation, actually go on, will be persecuted by the unrighteous uh, of this world. Okay, I got to do this. I didn't know if I was going to use it, but I am. I stumbled across an article this week, maybe you did too, about Ellis Cooper. Guys, some of us know who Ellis Cooper was. It was a shock, rock, shock, jock, right? Um, well, actually, an ancient shock rocker would be the best way to put it. Uh, he has now become a Christian. If you don't know who Ellis Cooper is, it's a guy, and you can Google it. It's right in your fingertips. And he shared his story at a church recently, and he says this. He says that Christianity got a hold of my life, turned me upside down, which was really to turn me the right way up. And he went on to share that, and I quote, there's a spiritual hunger going on. Everybody's feeling it. And if you don't feel it now, you will. Trust me, you will. Drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's real rebellion. And he acknowledged that many people struggle to understand how he can be a rock musician but still be a Christian. And his reply was this. There's nothing in Christianity that says, I can't be a rock star. People have a very warped view of Christianity. I thought that was a loaded sentence. They say this, it's all very precise. We never do wrong and we're praying all day and we are right wing. (laughs) He goes, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the one relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how we, the church, but also the world, we tend to focus on people and we tend to try to bring them down. You know, the world will look at people who become Christians and say, you're crazy, you're throwing everything out, what's the matter with you? In the case of Alice Cooper and other people who have made statements of faith, and yet the church themselves, we look at people like that and go, you know, how can you be a Christian and be a rock star? And I wonder if we've missed it in the church. I wonder if we've missed it. And again, Jesus talks about how, you know, we'll be persecuted by the unrighteous of this world. How many times have we heard stories of people even within the church being persecuted by their own? Aren't we on the same team? There's a difference between calling people out as false prophets but and, and those who persecute, those who make life difficult for other believers because we have to have a set of standards. We have to have a set of rules and religion in which we have to follow. You don't wear a hat in church. Gosh, you don't wear ripped jeans in church you don't you know pull up your pants you don't show your underwear in church you need to wear a suit and tie in church we don't clap in church we don't dance in church you hear it you hear what i'm saying and sometimes the judgment and the persecution comes from within and we're totally clueless and i wonder whether or not jesus is speaking to us now the next woe now if you have an niv it's not in your niv it's taken out. It's a hidden woe. I call it a hidden woe. So instead of seven woes, there's actually eight. Eight oh-ohs, because that's what's going on here. And it's not found in your NIV because it's not found in earlier manuscripts. And so what the Bible translators do is they go to Mark and they go to Luke and they take this woe and they put it into Matthew. And you'll, some of you will have a little footnote there that says that. But there's no doubt that Jesus did say this woe and I'm going to add it here. Because it fits the context. And he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while, for pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. He's calling these people pious thieves. They're exploiters. 
This practice is still seen today in the course of bringing spiritual comfort to widows, to to people who are alone, to people who are shut in, where false religious leaders will use their influence to deceive people into turning over their money. You know what I'm talking about. Often their life savings, sometimes even their home. They devoured the homes of defenseless people while appearing to be virtuous because of their prayers for them. I just want to pray for you. Con men are bad enough, but these ones pose as spiritual leaders. And so their condemnation, according to Jesus, is going to be greater than those who are just simple thieves. The next woe, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Interesting. And when you succeeded, you make them twice as much of a child of hell as you are. Strong words from Jesus because of the damnation they bring upon people. Now, the Jewish nation was supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to be the missionaries to the Gentile nations. In Genesis chapter 15, the promise to Abraham included that all families of the earth shall be blessed through his descendants. In Isaiah 49, they were to be a light to all nations. The nation failed at this. But just prior to Jesus' coming, history tells us that there was this missionary zeal that took hold of the hearts of many, and God was being proclaimed amongst the Gentiles. And so the Jews were actually going out and proclaiming the Creator to the world around them. This actually begins to help spread Christianity later on. But tragically, it's not enough for many of the Pharisees to see a Gentile come to the synagogues and begin to worship the true God. They were called proselytes of the gate. They were proselytes, but they were sort of out there. So if you became a proselyte and you wanted to become Jewish, you were sort of still on the outside. And the Pharisees would then demand that the Gentile converts begin to follow a minutia of the rabbinical traditions. And so when you began to do everything that they laid out to do, you then graduated to be called proselytes of the righteousness. So it was interesting because the self-righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees was enough of a curse because now these converted Gentiles would be so zealous in their new religion uh, that zeal would sometimes surpass their teachers in self-righteousness, and that's why Jesus says they're twice the sons of hell as you are. In other words, you made them worse than you. You missed the point. And he doesn't stop. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. What is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anybody swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by an oath. You blind man, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by anything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on the throne. Now, for some of you, you're going, well, that's a whole lot of swearing that Jesus is doing. Now, he's talking about making oaths and promises. Now, it's interesting. These guys made bogus vows. I can really get technical about this, but I'm not because I don't have the time. But the short and the fat of it is this. The Pharisees are teaching their followers that if they swore by the gold that was in the temple, or if I made a promise uh, on the gift that was on the altar, then I have to keep that promise. Are you tracking with me on this? But if they wanted to make a promise that they didn't want to keep and still sound spiritual and religious, they would just simply say, I swear by the temple. Not, not I swear by the gold in the temple. Or they say, I swear by the altar. And they won't, you know, not say, I swear by the gift on the altar. And that was the equivalent of making a promise with your fingers crossed. All right? So it was like a child saying, yes, I know, I promised. That's exactly what's going on. And it's crazy because it's so childish. And today it's easy to look back on this kind of teaching and just shake our heads. It seems almost amusing to believe that anybody could be that silly, but that's exactly what was taking place. And Jesus is not shaking his head. He's, he's not amused. He's not even you know, annoyed. He's downright angry. 
And the reason he's angry is because the Pharisees have been accustomed to making up their own rules and regulations and then passing those rules as they were the laws of God. They should have known better. Deuteronomy 23, you know, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay it, delay to pay for it. it should, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God was surely required of you. Ecclesiastes goes on and says, when you uh, <clears throat> vow a vow to God, defer not to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. Jesus makes it very clear that every vow is binding, regardless of whether you swear for it. Ultimately, it's, it's made before God who is the creator of everything, and God is going to hold you accountable to the vows we make in front of him or for him. Christians are supposed to be people of their word. If they say it, they should do it. I'll just let that sort of hang there for a while. Jesus goes back in Matthew chapter 5. You know, we're not supposed to get involved in sort of promise making where some vows can be kept and some can be broken. Jesus has a very direct and simple command to us as believers, as followers of Jesus. Let your statement be yes, of yes be yes, your no's be no's. Anything beyond that is evil. Is it a yes or a no? There's no maybe. Who? Oh. You know, you, you read this in your devotional time and you try to get all soft and cuddly. When you get up on stage and you start preaching it, it comes out a whole lot different. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrite. You give tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, you, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. These guys are also neglectful legalists. They're majoring in the minors. They're caught up in the minutiae as they, they try to fulfill the Mosaic law. They, uh, they try to tithe to the nth degree. There were, some, you know, there were several tithes commanded in the Mosaic law, all of which supported the Levitical priesthood. But the one that Jesus is bringing into question is actually found in Leviticus chapter 12. And the Pharisees, they... They took this beyond the staple of crops and grains and oil and wine and fruits and vegetables to conclude that, you know, even potted kitchen herbs such as mint and dill and, and other stuff, you know, out of every 10 leaves or out of every 10 seeds, they would sit there and they would separate them. They would put one aside for the tithe. You know, they, they, they patted themselves on the back for keeping the law so meticulous. But they neglected, as Jesus says, you're forgetting about justice, mercy, and faithfulness great that you got your counting skills down your math is fabulous but you're missing the big picture and this this was also something they should have known for each of these are common themes in the scripture micah 6 8 states you know he has shown you O man what is good what the lord requires of you to do justice to love mercy and to walk humbly before your god they ignored those things they were more caught up with eh, one seed for you Three for me, one for you, four for me. And when I first looked closely at this passage, I began to, like, why are these three herbs mentioned? And then I, I wonder if there's another thing being said here, because, you know, Google's a wonderful thing. When somebody gives off noises from their body, okay, I'll say the word flatulence. I said that in church, I know. Maybe some of you are really offended by that. I hope so. So we have gas. We have burping, belching, whatever you want. We have other types of body odors. And many of them can actually be traced back to our digestive system. Can they not? Thank you. You know, what, what goes in comes out, right? So <clears throat> if you like garlic, everybody else knows you had it the next day. Now, if you begin to look up the properties of these three little herbs, it's interesting you'll find out that they're also used for breath products and digestive conditions, which makes me question, and this is just me thinking a little bit outside of the box, what is Jesus saying? And I'm wondering, because he's on a rant, if he's saying that these religious guys, even though they are all dressed up, they don't even realize the odor that's coming out of them. Right? And I wonder if he recommends these herbs so that <clears throat> they can go through the extremes to clear up their own smell. Because these religious leaders technically should be helping relieve 
the nation. And he's using the metaphor of the herbs. Helping relieve God's people from their pain. Helping to relieve God's people from their odor. They should be giving them the correct medicinal herbs of justice and mercy and faith. And then he summarizes their position and he gives us, you know, a huge contrast. And the gnat was obviously one of the smallest of creatures. The camel is the largest one in the area. And, 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 and it's such a one-sided vision, spirituality that the Pharisees are walking with that when they see a gnat, which was not necessarily unclean according to the Old Testament, let's say it fell into their drink, they would strain it very carefully in order not to partake of any creeping thing. But when a camel fell into their drink, which was unclean, they swallowed it without even noticing it. So Jesus is, you know, using this exaggeration to bring it to their attention. And the point is that they're such blind guys that they concentrate on dealing with the small things with great care, but practically ignore all the big things altogether without even bothering to consider them. And they spend hours splitting herbs and ensuring that they haven't missed one. And yet they pass over justice. They pass over mercy. They pass over faith just as they, as it just didn't matter. They're too busy, caught up with the intricate details uh, to spend large time on the things that actually matter. And then he goes on, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean also. You know, they, they love to esteem themselves as more spiritual than other people, the Pharisees did. We would expect them to be preoccupied with their external, experience, uh, external appearances rather than the conditions of their heart. Leviticus 11 talks about the defilement of vessels and plate, like plates and cups, and that's where Jesus is nailing again. And the picture of these Pharisees, you know, carefully cleaning the outside of a, a couple at the same time, it's full of faith, you know, filth. You know, you don't, how many of us, when we wash our dishes, we just wash the outside? Well, this is what he's saying. You know, it, it, I think Jesus is trying to be amusing, but he's, he's using exaggeration to get his point across. And the application is that the vessels represent themselves. Keeping the outside clean with constant washing, what the Pharisees would do. Not worrying about the inner heart. You're missing the whole point. And yet I wonder if he's talking to us too. Right? You know, do we mask over our true character, being careful that we do the right thing, the ceremonial laws, so that we appear pious to our brothers and sisters in our faith-filled community? You know, Jesus is saying, look at, you know, a meal being served in those dishes. You're, you're, you're leaving all the filth, all the putrid food inside. You know, it looks great from the outside, but who's going to want to eat the contaminated food that's on the inside? And the true per measure of a person is not what they say and do in public. The true measure of a person is what they say and do in private. And so Jesus is telling us, look at the cleaning begins on the inside, in the heart, and then it expands from there. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Like, can you imagine being on the receiving end of these words? Now, he changes the image from cups and dishes to tombs, and it's the Feast of Passover, right? This is where Jesus is at. There's all these people coming in from out of town, and they spruce up the city. And in that process, what the, the, the religious folks would do is that all the gray stones, all the tombs were whitewashed. They were painted white. And this wasn't just to make it look nice, although it was part of it. They, there was a much deeper significance in this whole process and it was so that the visitors, the pilgrims coming to the city who didn't know what was what would not accidentally walk onto a tomb, step on a tomb, stay, you know, put their hand on it, and then be rendered unclean for seven days, according to Numbers chapter 19. 
And so if I came in as a pilgrim, I'm coming to the Feast of Passover, and I sit down, and I sit, let's say it's a, you know, it's Brother So-and-So's tomb. Well, now I'm unclean. I can't participate in the Passover. So they didn't want that to happen to the pilgrims. So they began to paint the place up, and the Pharisees believed that one could you know, obviously be rendered religiously dirty, and now you have to stay away from the celebration. Um, and and we, we want to make sure that our visitors to the city all participate. And he continues by saying, look, it, it's more than just you guys painting. You're actually full of dead man's bones. This would have greatly offended the Pharisees if they weren't offended already. They were set on avoiding things that would render them being contaminated so that they would miss the... And they missed the whole point of what Jesus is saying. They're not only internally dirty. Now he goes a little further and he says, you're dead on the inside. And what really counts as far as God is concerned is what a person is within. And it's so possible for us to look good on the outside and yet actually be morally dirty and spiritually dead inside. And when we view from outward appearances, the hypocrite always looks good. They know how to play the part. The problem is on the inside where wickedness and evil thoughts reign supreme. And Jesus is actually looking at these guys and saying to them, you're actually spiritual contaminants to other people. You're the plague. Woe to you teachers. He doesn't give up. Woe to you teachers of the laws and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets. You decorate the graves of the righteous. You say, you know, if we lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you're the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then. Complete what your ancestors started. Okay, so now Jesus dropped the gloves. Because these guys boasted that they were better than their forefathers. They, they claimed that throughout history, if I was there, if I was there, you know, we wouldn't have killed the prophets like our forefathers did. They even went so far as to enlarge and beautify the tombs and monuments to the prophets that their forefathers murdered. But it was all a sham. Because these guys had the same nature, the same character. As a matter of fact, Jesus knew that they at this exact time are plot, plotting to murder him, the greatest prophet at all, of all. Their plan to murder Jesus is the culmination of the guilt of those who had murdered God's messengers in the past. <laughs> and so he calls them out. He goes, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Do you understand why commentators don't like this passage? How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill. No, 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 no. Foretelling. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from, your own, from town to town. And so, interesting, Paul comes to mind, right? And so upon you, so, and so upon you will come to all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous, Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come to this generation. Now Jesus is speaking prophetically. He's actually telling them the future. He's calling them snakes. He's calling them vipers, specifically small little poisonous snakes that lived in the region. They were especially dangerous because they looked like dried uh, stick. And many people were bitten when they gathered to pick up wood. The same thing happened to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 28. These vipers are deadly. They're deceitful, right? And... Uh, uh, and so are the scribes and the Pharisees. And these false spiritual leaders were in grave danger of God's eternal judgment. And they are unable to escape it on their own. Jesus said, I'm going to send more prophets, wise men, scribes. And, and their normal purpose was to reveal the truth, to warn people to repent and to believe God. Salvation would be granted to those who would listen and listen to the message. And the book of Acts records thousands of who have believed the message of the gospel of Christ. Because that's exactly what took place. But the flip side of the gospel is the rejection and the condemnation of those who reject it. The character of these scribes and Pharisees, it's already set. They would be guilty of killing the prophets. Just like their fathers, Jesus is crucified pretty soon. Just as some of the apostles become crucified. All of them are martyred with the exception of John. When he was 
uh, and he was obviously persecuted. Stephen was stoned to death. The apostle Paul was scourged several times before being executed. Persecution by the scribes and the Pharisees was a fact of life for the early Christians. Jesus is just giving them the heads up. By Acts chapter 8, the church scatters from Jerusalem because of the heavy persecution. And all of this only proved that the scribes and Pharisees were just like their forefathers, contrary to the claim that, you know, if they agreed that, you know, if we were there, we wouldn't have done this. But no, they're guilty. From Abel, who was slain, to Zechariah, from A to Z, all of it, from the first to the last one, they were guilty. And so Jesus goes on this rant of woes, and he finally comes to the very end. And you got to think that the guy's exhausted, because when you go off on people, right, we, we get exhausted. And he closes his session with, with some lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those sent to you. How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you'll not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they're puzzled. It would actually be advisable for us to compare these final words in Matthew 23 regarding Jerusalem to the words in Luke 19 where it says, Now when Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you had only known on this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and close you in from every side, which took place, and they demolished you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave within one stone on top of another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. It's prophetic. And the generations suffered. These guys suffered. The city suffered. And they brought destruction upon themselves because they ignored who Jesus was. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Roman armies of Titus. And the records tell us that he slaughtered people or they scattered them around the globe. So, how do we make this practical? Today, I would like to nominate the uh, hypocrisy of Ward. And when I call your name, will you please stand? Right? Let's deal with the obvious. The study of this text is of the Pharisees and, and a group that is actually similar to many Christians today. You can say amen. You can say ouch. You can say I drink to that. I don't really care. But you need to listen. The Pharisees were that group of people in the Gospels which most closely resembled us as believers today. As well-meaning folks, as correct as they were in so many fundamental truths Yet they were some of Jesus' strongest adversaries. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah, as the Christ. They rejected and resisted him. And, and they played a large role in the rejection by the nation. John Stott wrote, hypocrisy is hideous. What cancer is to the body, hypocrisy is to the church. It's a killing agent. And unfortunately, hypocrisy is also addictive. And even though Jesus reserved his most severe words of condemnation for the hypocrite, we still seem to prefer that lifestyle to truth and authenticity. Why does it appear that so many Christians are hypocrites? I, I think it's the results of some confusion about what a real Christian is. What, you know, again, what Ellis Cooper talked about earlier. In fact, as we better understand what a true Christian is, we'll have a better understanding of what a hypocrite is. And this is what I want to throw out to you today. The Christian walk. Your relationship with God. Although it is intensely personal was never meant to be private. The more private you make your struggles, and the more private you make your walk with Christ, the more religious you become. And the more public you're able to walk in your relationship with Jesus, the more sin loses its power over you because Christ is evident in your life and people see it. Going to church, your phone's ringing, answer, turn it off, please. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more, obviously, than being standing in a garage makes you a car. But we have to live with the possibility that, that 
what some people perceive as hypocrisy within the church is in fact a case of mistaken identity. Some people are no more Christians than I'm Hispanic because I like Mexican food. Joe, man. <laughs> right? Some people just look like they're Christians because they get up on Sundays and they go to this place called a church. They're not the church. They go to a church. You tracking with me? And actually, this should take some pressure off of those of you today if you're investigating church. Welcome to Seoul. Yeah, I'm a little crazy. That's just the way it is. You know, you're not expected to act like a Christian if you're not one yet. And as you seek and as you ask questions, you don't get caught up in all of what you should do or shouldn't do. Once you surrender your life to Christ, he begins to change us from the inside out. And you don't have to manufacture Christian behavior on your own. He'll give you the desire and the power to change after you receive Christ in your life. Real Christians are forgiven sinners. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker that reads, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't really say that the, sorry, the Bible doesn't say that Christ followers are perfect. It does say that those who surrender their lives will be perfectly forgiven. And there's a difference between being a sinner and a hypocrite. There's an unspoken assumption that a Christian is someone who doesn't sin. Nothing can be further from the truth. Hello, sinners. Yeah. In reality, it's just the opposite. 1 John 1, 8 puts it very clearly. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A hypocrite or one who wears the mask claims to be free from faults. A Christian, on the other hand, freely admits the fact that he or she is a sinner. The next verse describes the difference between a hypocrite and an honest sinner. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. A forgiven sinner consistently seeks cleansing from sin. You know, to look at the church and see sinners is one thing. To label the church full of hypocrites is another. It's not a hall for super saints. It's a hospital for sick sinners. And since us as Christians are not perfect, it follows that churches are not full of perfect people. It, that's one of the things I like about soul, that we value authenticity here. I know I'm a sinner. Hey, you know, I know you're a sinner too. I just haven't put it on Facebook yet. But you know what? We're a church of forgiven failures. Yeah? Or am I preaching to a whole bunch of hypocrites and I'm getting stoned after this one in a a literal sense? You know, when you think about it, the church is the only organization where public admission of sinfulness is a requirement for membership. Hi, I sin. Great, come on in. This is where you belong. This is a place for sinners. And if you have the courage to admit that you're one of us, look at, you're welcome here. You're welcome. So church, let's not wear any masks. Like if you're playing spiritual charades, let me just say, stop now. You're not fooling anybody. You know what? We can all see your hypocrisy. And we're turned off by it. In fact, there may be some non-Christians who have, been ri- who have actually written off the church and God because of the way that you have been acting. Now, those are harsh words that Jesus has been saying to us. It's time to come clean. It's time to walk the talk and to live what you believe. The, the way you live your life is important, people. And if you want to avoid being a hypocrite, guard yourself against majoring on the minors. Implement the important. Don't get so caught up in the minutia that you miss the majestic. Let's stop trying to legislate and being the legislative moral compass of the world. Let's let the world know that Christians are the ones that love people, whoever they are, whether they're gay, whether they're straight, whether they're Jews or Muslims, whether they're religious or atheists, whether they're capitalists or not, conservative or liberal. Let's show the world who's, who, who shows compassion through generous action, that we actually seek justice so that systemic causes of poverty can be overcome to the best of our ability. Grab your phones. Let's text message the world that Christians are to be called to rich generosity and the rich nations to work for the common good. Let's show the world that Christ followers are willing to give their lives for the cause of peace. 
that we oppose violence in all of its forms, that we will lay down our lives to help protect the vulnerable from the violent. Let's put it on every computer screen of every home that Christians care for the environment. We don't just use the raw materials for our own economic gain, but we see it as the precious handiwork of our creator that's given it to us. Let's email that the world that Christians actually have personal integrity, that our yes is yes, our no is no, that we keep our marriage vows, that we're aware of how destructive misused sexuality can be, yet we are compassionate towards people who make sexual mistakes, and we will never consider ourselves superior. Do I get an amen? Let's be a letter to the world that embraces to build harmony amongst the races and cultures. You always know that you'll be respected when you're around a Christian. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And this is what Christ calls us to do and to be sin, warts, and all. That they will know that we are Christians by our love. One of the biggest dangers in all of our lives is becoming a professional Christian. And what started with sincerity and humbleness can rapidly become into showing, becoming showy and proud. Where rules of the church become more important than winning souls or seeing God move in our gatherings. And we have to guard against this. We have to constantly remember that the main goal of the church is to win souls, to get the word out for Christ, and not to try to burden people with rules and legalism and man-made theologies. Listen, where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we'll be silent. And society honors the outward appearance, but God honors the humility. And throughout Scripture, God prefers that humble person to a proud person. Make scripture people, not others, your standard of life. Jesus beats these guys up for telling people what to do, but not doing it themselves. And one of the biggest mistakes people can make is looking to somebody else to be the example for them, especially in terms of how to live a Christian life. If you're investigating Christianity and you see imperfect Christians, you don't make your decision on the basis of, a, basis of an unfinished product. Make your decision on the basis of the person of who Jesus Christ is. He can impact your present by forgiving you your sins. He can make changes in your life now so that you're not what you used to be. And he will help you become what you will be by steadily chipping away at your rough spots and changing you from the inside out. And thank you for being patient with me, guys. Others claim to be Christians, but their lives say otherwise. Look at the fact of the matter is people are going to let you down if you look to them as the standard for what it means to live for Christ. We need the scriptures. They don't change. They don't let you down. They're applicable in every culture and time period. And if you don't believe me, go back, read the Sermon on the Mount, and tell me that the words of Jesus aren't applicable today. Just try to tell me that. And if you want to be a person in humility, it starts with submitting yourself to the Scripture and using the Scripture as a standard for what's right and what's wrong. Jesus is hard on hypocrites but never condemns sinners. The Son did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. In fact, He embraces those who own up to their mistakes. He embraces those who own up to their moral failures. And... Uh, we think we, sometimes we need to put on a mask and act religious in order to gain God's favor. And Jesus says, take off your mask, be real, own up for your rebellion. And if you do, I'll forgive you. That's it. That's simple. Maybe you're here today going, Jerry, I don't know if I can do this. Well, maybe you have a lot more questions about Jesus or the church. Maybe you're hurt because maybe somebody's used scriptures against you. Maybe you just need a spiritual reset. If that is you, and we're going to pray in a moment, and the number is going to go up on the screen. All you need to do is text the word soul to that number. Our pastoral care person, her name is Joanne. She'll respond to you confidentially. And if you want to engage her in conversation, if you have questions, if you want to meet with us on staff, she'll arrange it. And we'll gladly sit down with you and walk with you. We'll pray with you. We'll talk with you. We'll do whatever we can to help you because that's what we're called to do. So 
numbers up on the screen if you need to. Let's pray. God, we often fall short of the mark. And then again, you never said that this path was an easy one. And so we carry such heavy baggage with us. And we ask that you would help us leave behind the things that we don't need. We, we also ask that you'd help us carry the things that we, uh, we can't give up yet. And we know that someday we'll come to you free of all the things that hold us back or drag us down. But until then, God, walk with us. We give all these things to you. Thank you for those who have placed in our life. We thank you for this community. We thank you for your saving grace and love and power. And we thank you for loving us. And Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for your love. And I do pray that grace might take root in the deepest places that you might enable us to walk in honesty. And I pray for the men and women here. I, I pray for the men here. I, I think most men live life in their mind with few friendships, with few honest relationships. God, I pray that you would give them a band of brothers to run with. I pray for our women here, that we, that we would make glory in you and you alone, and that you would bring our sisters together. So God, help us because we need you in all facets. Because we tend to go to religion by default. So help us, I pray. And it's for your beautiful name's sake. Amen. Stand with me, please. I ask that you would help us minister to our community today. There's tables, the chairs, stack the chairs six high. And if you can start bringing out tables and dropping the legs and their volunteers are going to be walking in, you greet people, you embrace people. You know, you can give them a holy kiss for all I care. Good luck on that one. You get punched in the mouth, remember they're Irish. So I'm just saying. <laughs> Ancient time, the one who blessed, extend his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here it is. May the light of God shine through you as you leave this place today. May you take God's love into the world of darkness and may people look to you for light and may you show them the light of his love. Soul Sanctuary, be blessed. See you next week. Now go and live the church. Amen.